This is an ABC podcast. Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander listeners, please be advised that this conversation contains content that might be upsetting. Please use discretion when listening. Rachel Perkins is an Aranta and Kalkadun woman who lives in Alice Springs. Rachel makes films and documentaries. She's been doing it for many years. And now she's created a three-part TV series called The Australian Wars. The series tells the naked truth about the violent struggle that broke out right across this continent after the arrival of the British for control of the land. It's a series of wars that are barely commemorated, if at all, even though, as one historian says in the series, it was Australia's most important war, it was fought on Australian soil, it was about Australia, and it determined the ownership, control and sovereignty of Australia. The TV series puts to bed once and for all the hoary old myth that Aboriginal people were like passive children who never fought back against the encroaching newcomers. There were many thousands of people killed, both Aboriginal and non-Aboriginal, although the toll was vastly greater on one side than the other. And care was taken to conceal the scale and speed of the violence from the white settlers, And this was done largely through the recruitment of native police forces that were deployed to do much of the killing. The story of these wars is also inscribed into Rachel's family history, and it led her to a place in central Australia that Rachel never really wanted to go to. The Australian Wars is currently showing on SBS and SBS On Demand. Hello, Rachel. Welcome. Thanks, Richard, for having me on the show. You're a daughter of the great Charles Perkins, the activist who instigated the Freedom Rides around country New South Wales, who later became the head of the Department of Aboriginal Affairs in Canberra. How do you remember your father? Oh, well, I miss him, you know, most days. He passed away in 2000. And there's often times where, you know, I wish he was around to go to for advice. He was very wise, but he was also an inspirational figure, very affectionate dad. And he suffered very early in his life from a kidney failure and had a transplant and until his death was one of the longest surviving transplant, kidney transplant people. So he lived every moment. You know, when people have the sort of a near-death experience, I think it gives them appreciation of life. So he lived every moment to the fullest, and he wanted to use the second chance in life he had to change the world, and he did. (laughs) And that was inspiring to be around because you could see it happening before you. And... He always felt that one shouldn't be satisfied with the status quo. Keep the fire in your belly, make change, use your life to the fullest and and do something. Made him a very active, busy person (laughs) to be around. (laughs) Most of the time when I saw him on TV, he was often quite a forceful advocate. At times he had a kind of a, a sense of anger about him. The only time I ever saw him in person was when he was giving a speech launching an art gallery exhibition and he had grandchildren sort of running around him. And that seemed to give him such pleasure. And he spoke of his grandkids with real affection. Was he like that as a father? Was he an affectionate man? Really affectionate. And and I think that's right. Most people saw the public figure as the fiery, you know, the firebrand. And, and that was part of his strength because although he was a bureaucrat, he never let that limit him. And he was a great truth teller. And I think that's why so many of his people supported him. But he was hilariously funny too. And you never saw that side much in public. And also he was a devoted father and grandfather. And in his later years, his grandchildren gave him great joy, as you say. And basically he had one on, you know, on his hip or on his back or on his lap mm-hmm. pretty much constantly until he passed away. They just gave him such joy and It was lucky that he had that time with them. He became like one of the country's most senior public servants. But what do you know about the circumstances of his birth, Rachel? Well, he was born here at the original town of Alice Springs, a place we know as Walachathara in Aranda, and um, called the Bungalow. It was a native institution set up under the protection era government policy of the time, and its intention was to separate what were called half-caste, fair-skinned children, and give them a better quality of life. It started with racialized but good intentions. His mother, Hetty, worked there, so he was born on the kitchen table at the telegraph station before lunch, and then they <laughs> cleaned the table off after the birth and <laughs> kept going. So his first years were 
as a inmate at the Native Institution, but he was lucky because he had his mother and his brother and his extended family there. So unlike a lot of the children who were removed or put there by their parents, he had a lot of contact with his mother. So he grew up in the Todd Riverbed in the hills of Alice Springs at this place called The Bungalow. He was a very talented soccer player, which took him all over the world. How did he and your mum, Eileen, meet? Well, that's right. He went down to Adelaide. Uh, There was a a priest who suggested to his mother that he could get a better education in Adelaide, and so she reluctantly let him go. He and his brother went to school down in Adelaide, and there they discovered soccer. They'd never seen it played before, and uh, they played a couple of matches barefoot and had a great athleticism, as many Aboriginal people do, and suddenly became fabulous soccer players. And so he went on to play for the local South Australian teams, become captain, I think, of the local team and met my mother at a dance. And he was very taken in by the non-English speaking background communities of Greeks and Italians loved him. He played for a Greek team. So he met her at a dance. She originally thought he might be Greek or Italian and then discovered he was Aboriginal in the course of meeting him. But very quickly they were married. It was a whirlwind romance. You spent most of your early life in Canberra because Canberra is where the Department of Aboriginal Affairs was and where the tent embassy was as well. That would have meant long family trips to Alice Springs for you as a kid. What do you remember of those long, long car trips between Canberra and Alice? Yes, well, we moved to Canberra because my father wanted to be at the centre of power. So we grew up there, but every summer we would make this epic trip to Alice Springs to go home and visit his mother and be on country. And Was there um, aircon in the family vehicle, Rachel? <laughs> yes, this is before air conditioning mm, was invented. Right. And it was before the road was also bitumized between Adelaide and or part of the road from Adelaide to Alice. So, you know, you can imagine a red dirt road of thousands of kilometres, you know, wet towels on the windows trying to cool it down and, yeah, these big epic drives in the middle of summer that, used to get us back home to Alice. So why did you decide to make the move to Alice out of comfy Canberra? What brought you back there? Well, you're a Canberran yourself, aren't you, Richard? Yes, you called me there. I did spend some formative years of my life there, yes. Yes, so I wanted to come back home to Alice because I, I did feel a bit of a hole in my understanding of my own culture and I thought, well, I could go to university, I could go to Alice Springs and get it firsthand. So I, so I came back home here when I was 18 which was the best decision I think I ever made. Why? Well, it gave me the career that I've still got 30 years on. You know, it's why I'm sitting here now talking to you about this series. But it also opened a world to me being with a camera, you know, takes you, as you know, interviewing people, meeting people to me, takes you into all these different worlds. And it plunged me right into the centre of Aboriginal culture because we were making programs about, you know, in Aboriginal languages, about Aboriginal traditional knowledges, uh, hunting, ceremonies, you know, all sorts of things that I wouldn't have necessarily had that immediate access to. And it's been my life's work. The title of your new TV series, The Australian Wars, is carefully chosen. Sometimes the violence that broke out after the arrival of the British on Australian soil is called frontier violence or colonial violence. Why do you think it's important that this is seen as a series of wars on Australian soil? Well, because it's what it was and it needs to be given that dignity and recognition because the people who fought in those wars fought in very difficult circumstances and um, that needs acknowledgement in the same way that we pay respect and acknowledgement to servicemen and women who serve Australia in conflict. So I feel like we should give it the equal standing and respect that we do to the Anzac tradition and and, and other theatres of war in which um, Australians have served. And as you say, we picked that title quite carefully in Aotearoa, New Zealand. I think last year or the year before, they changed the name of what were known as the Maori Wars to the New Zealand Wars. And I think that gives it a status that acknowledges that these were the wars that made that nation in the same way that the warfare that occurred here made the contemporary Australian nation. So that's why I think it's fitting that we refer to it as the Australian wars because they happen here in our own communities between our ancestors 
about the country that we now call Australia and indeed the governments that oversaw that warfare formed the modern Australian state. So for me it just makes sense to call it that and to give Australians a way to speak about it. That makes it our own and acknowledges that it happened here. If I try and think back to what I was told or what I thought about these conflicts as a much younger person, I think there was a distinct impression that Aboriginal people were like these saintly children who were almost too good for this world and who lay down and kind of accepted the violence that was thrust upon them. Many people seem to think that only Aboriginal people were killed in these wars. What's the reality that you've discovered, Rachel? Well, look, there is a myth that Aboriginal people didn't fight back. It's a very pervasive myth. Or that they just went away somewhere. You know, people say often, oh, there weren't any Aboriginal people here. So all of these myths abound in Australian folklore, I suppose you'd call it. But when you go to the records, that's a very different story. Historians, very dedicated historians, have meticulously gone through the records And what the records show is that there, you know, it didn't happen everywhere. There wasn't violent encounters everywhere. There were friendships. You know, we have to accept the fact that these were complex situations that changed. The frontier moved over time. This is frontier warfare. It's defined as a changing battleground, if you like. But the overwhelming experience in the archives that the evidence shows is that there was warfare. And, of course, in my family and in many Aboriginal families and in many non-Aboriginal families, we have oral histories handed down of the conflict that supports what's there in the archival record. You have an historian who's reading a document written by a man named Neil Black, who was a young Scottish entrepreneur in Western Victoria. And this goes back to, what, the 1820s? He said, the best way to procure a station is to go outside and take up a new run, provided the conscience of the party is sufficiently seared to enable him, without remorse, to slaughter natives right and left. Yes, well, that letter from Neil Black was written, I think, in the mid-1830s in relation to Western Victoria. There are many letters like that. I mean, he was very honest. Um, He said, I have to take up a run where Aboriginal people have already been killed because he couldn't bring himself to do it. And there are many, many letters like his or of people saying, I can't write down everything I've seen because it is too horrific, but I've seen terrible things. And there's a lot of language that's used in official records, particularly police records. A word that comes up again and again is dispersal, which means shooting people when they come across camps of Aboriginal people. So there's a lot of dispersal happening as the pastoral industry expands across the frontier in the 1820s because people, you know, Aboriginal people are defending their country and the settlers are arming themselves or or using state forces to assist them in their expansion. Where do these wars start, Rachel? In Sydney and wherever European occupation goes the wars occur uh, because the driving force of colonialism and in Australia it was an agricultural pastoral expansion. It needs land. So more people come, more sheep need grazing areas, they need water, people want access to land. And so as this frontier, as it's called, pushes into Aboriginal country, Aboriginal people and colonists meet And there's a battle for supremacy. Who will own the land and who, in some cases, will get access to the women? This is the other trigger for warfare that's uh, not often discussed, this imbalance in the gender of Europeans coming here, the lack of women, white women. So they turn to Aboriginal women. And, of course, as the historians point out, for quite a long period of this, slavery is still uh, legal in the British Empire. And so... People think it's quite normal to take and abduct and abuse black people, in particular women. Talking to historians in the past, it becomes really clear that in declaring the Great Southern Land as a colony of the British Crown, the British violated one of their most precious principles, which is that of rule of law and property ownership. You don't just walk into a place 
and declare you own it in the name of some government without any kind of a document or exchange or anything like that. When Philip arrived, was there any effort ever made to have a conversation through Benelong or through any other Aboriginal intermediaries to saying, we're going to be taking this place, but in return you'll get this and there'll be some... Was there any kind of negotiation made? Well, that's right. I mean, the British didn't. I mean, property is central to British civilization. The rights of property is a founding principle of it. But yet when they colonise, in Australia at least, they didn't recognise the property rights of any groups. But Philip, Governor Philip, the first governor in uh, New South Wales, he very quickly realised that Aboriginal people were very connected to their country. Benelong explained that Goat Island was his country. Uh, They went up the Parramatta River and realised that the country of the Gadigal and Wongal ended and a new group took over. So they very quickly realised people were very attached to their land. But he was not given any means to negotiate any rights or exchange treaties, agreements with Aboriginal people. So he was in a difficult situation because his main role was to colonise, that is to take possession of the country and expand the colony. And he knew that to do that, he would come into conflict with Aboriginal people who viewed the land as theirs. So, you know, he was in a very difficult situation. The most famous Aboriginal warrior of the time was Pemelway. When the British wrote about Pemelway and they were aware of the retaliatory violence he was practising against the encroachment of the new people on his land, did they regard him as a guerrilla warrior or a soldier or something less than that? I think with Indigenous warriors you see not just Pemelway but so many of them, you see a range of views. So there's uh, some who view them as savages and as pests who are just criminals. But then there are other more insightful people who say these people are defending their country. There's one uh, record that says they see themselves as the true possessors of the soil. So they understand what's going on and they understand that they will ultimately have to fight for it. So there's always a range of views. And most often they're informed by views of racial superiority of the time as well. So you get that. There's an undercurrent always. One of the most enlightening parts of the series for me was the when we get to the 1820s and we talk about the settlement of Tasmania. And Marcia Langton says that in the 1820s, British colonists were lured to Tasmania all the way from Britain on the promise of free and abundant land, but they found a very different reality when they arrived and realised they were under constant attack from people who felt their land was being stolen. I don't, do you see this as explaining a kind of embattled sentiment amongst some of those settlers? Here we are, we've, we've been lured out here under false pretenses and now we're into a fight for our lives, for our very existence. You look, that's absolutely true. I mean, the British government were putting flyers up and, and circulating pamphlets, you know, with men finding wives and building houses and, you know, this amazing future that you could have in the colonies. And so they were enticing people out to the colonies. And in the 1820s, they changed their land policy and expansion exploded, you know, in Hobart and New South Wales. And so these colonists are coming thinking that they are going to have this new life and all of this possibility of owning land and no doubt improving their lot for their children. And they find themselves embattled in a battle over that land that they have been given. So that is where they demand protection from the state. And you see it in town meetings and letters to the paper. You know, you've brought us here. You have to defend us. They don't want to necessarily have the dirty business of fighting in armed conflict with Aboriginal people, but they will go to those links if they have to, but they feel that the state should be doing it on their behalf. Tell me about the incidents at Goff's Hut in 1828 that led to the introduction of martial law. Yes, so this is a place where a family, colonists are looking after someone else's sheep. We don't know exactly what happened to cause the violence, whether it was in retribution. You know, the records just don't illuminate what happened there. But what we do know is that... Mr. Goff's wife and two daughters and a neighbour are killed by a group of Aboriginal people. We don't know exactly who those people were. And it was the first time 
that a white woman had been killed in the conflict to that point. It's very unusual to have white women killed and in this case in Tasmania it happened and the colonists really caused a huge uproar. And, you know, it was a tragedy. Women and children being killed is, is a poor, you know, it's, it's terrible in anyone's book. So the governor, we think, leaked this information to the press. It hits the papers. The community is uproared and that is the trigger to bring in martial law, which is a thing that the British Empire did when they had what they called uprisings. So they did it in New South Wales in the 1820s and then they enacted it in Tasmania in 1830, I think it was. And what do we know about the scale of the violence that followed? Well, martial law suspends the civil structure of a society and the military takeover. And in many cases, it's sort of signal to people that, you know, you will not be punished if you defend yourself or A, attack or kill Aboriginal people. Of course, there's a lot of flowery language written around these sorts of declarations. Always the British are sort of saying you must take care not to wound women and children, etc. But the outcome is always the same. So these became sort of like Wild West type places, lawless Wild West type zones in, across Tasmania. Well, yes. I mean, they were places of warfare. You know, the grasslands in central Tasmania, uh, what's called the settled districts or the Midlands, was intensely fought over territory because the best grazing country in the island. And there was a lot of money to be made. I mean, the wool industry was booming. So the stakes are very, very high. And for Aboriginal people, that's their hunting ground. It's their livelihood. But it's estimated that in this intense period, which is sort of about from 1825 to 1830, about almost 300 colonists are killed. Now, that's very big numbers for a small colony, 25,000 white people roughly. You can imagine if 300 white people are killed right now in Tasmania over that period, there'd be a huge outrage. Of course, we don't know how many Aboriginal Tasmanians are killed, but people talk about a kill ratio of 10 to 1 or more in Tasmania, but we'll, we'll never know how many Aboriginal people were killed during that period. But 300 colonists is quite large. And what became of the last Aboriginal survivors of this, this war? Well, Governor Arthur tried many things uh, because the Aboriginal resistance was so strong and they were so adept in their own country and, you know, used all sorts of tactics to fight the British very successfully, uh, which is why martial law and what's commonly known as the Black Line but the general movement was instituted to drive Aboriginal people out of their country. So he used roving parties where people would be paid to basically capture Aboriginal people. I mean, he really tried so many things to defeat the Aboriginal people of Tasmania. And eventually he offered them a deal, probably the first treaty in Australia, which was to lay down their arms for a short time and to, to be secure on, on an offshore island and then to be able to return to their country. And so Aboriginal men and women agreed to this under great duress and on the condition they would be able to return to their country. But, of course, that bargain was not honoured by Governor Arthur because, of course, once Aboriginal people had been moved off to an island off the coast of Tasmania, real estate prices went through the roof, 400% increase, you know, money to be made. So there was no way they were going to let them back. So that demand of the settlers, that the island be made safe for them, that, that was achieved? Yes, and in, in every turn of history, despite what the British say and all the wonderful things they express, it's always their interests. It's always the colonists' interests that prevail. By the mid-19th century on the mainland, the authorities came up with the idea of using a native police corps to conduct these wars. Tell me about how that came about and thinking behind it in recruiting Aboriginal people to kill other Aboriginal people on behalf of the British Crown. Yes, well, I think it's important to see these wars in the context of what the British Empire was doing all over the world. So in Africa and India, they used locals to fight locals. You know, Aboriginal people know their country. They can live off the land very quickly they became adept horsemen, marksmen, and um, highly skilled trackers. 
And so it's a methodology that they'd used elsewhere, creating a force of local people to fight other local people. And they did that in Victoria. It began in the Western Districts of Victoria, which crushed the Gunditjmara resistance. Then they did it on the northern New South Wales with Gamilaroi people. And once Queensland separated uh, into its own government, one of the first things they did was set up a native police force because they saw the importance of it in quashing what was a very highly populated region of Australia and um, they were massively outnumbered. So they thought that the best way to conquer the locals was to set up a native police force and they used people that were from outside the region. It was very important that they did that and they knew that because, of course, Aboriginal people wouldn't hunt down their own people. So they recruited from hundreds of kilometres away, so these Aboriginal men were strangers in this territory. Some they recruited uh, out of jail. They said, if you become a native policeman, we'll let you out. Others were recruited at the end of a rifle, and some men joined voluntarily. But what you do see in the records is that a lot of Aboriginal men, once they are recruited, they escape. And if they escape, many of them are shot in the process. Broadcast. Podcast. This is Conversations with Richard Feidler. Rachel, we were talking before about the special forces that were recruited by the colonial governments in the 19th century that were known as the Native Police Corps. These were Aboriginal men who were recruited from different parts of Australia, equipped with guns and horses to kill other Aboriginal people on behalf of the British Crown. Now, one of the aspects of this that struck me very forcibly was it seemed like a very useful way to put the moral stain of the killings of Aboriginal people on Aboriginal people. Is that how you see it? Yes, I've heard people um, blame the native policemen in Contemporary times, I've had people say, oh, it was the native policemen, they're just so vicious. And But in the records, you see, you know, once they get the scent of blood, you know, they're unstoppable. Uh, so, yes. Oh, that's monstrous. That's just some terrible. People do, oh, <laughs> some people do blame the native policemen themselves. Rather than looking at the, the state government, the Queensland government was dominated by pastoralists in the period that this force is set up. So it is in absolutely their interests to have a force that is going to allow them to pursue their economic interests. What I really mean by this, though, is this a way of preserving the sense of innocence among the white settlers about the project of colonising Australia? What the Native Police Force were doing was an open secret in Queensland. Everyone knew what they were doing. So you could suggest perhaps there is an innocence, but, you know, there were two inquiries into the Native Police where there was extensive evidence given to the Queensland government about what they were doing and the Queensland government didn't do anything to stop it, right? But what they did do very deliberately is that they set the forces up with only one white person in charge and they disallowed other white people from participating in activities of the native police because they didn't want white people giving evidence about what was going on. But everybody knew what was going on. This wasn't that long after the British Parliament had abolished slavery. So there was a sense in London, in places in any case, of human rights and the need to defend human rights. What was London making of all these stories that were coming out of their Crown colonies in Australia? Well, you know, they basically had given over power in Queensland to the Queensland colonial government. 
So, yes, there were people concerned about what was going on in Queensland and it's one of the reasons they wouldn't give Western Australia independent government until much later. Western Australia didn't get it until 1890. But time and time again you see rhetoric coming out of the colonial office about how Aboriginal people should be treated. But when it gets to on-the-ground realities, it's a completely different story and the colonial office don't really do much about it. I mean, there is this brief period in the 1840s where they say, okay, uh, British expansion, you know, colonial expansion is going to happen, so we'll set up protectors, three or four people that they say, okay, you're meant to go around and, you know, inquire into the deaths of Aboriginal people and set up places where Aboriginal people can be put on little reserves so that they can be basically protected from, you know, <laughs> the white people. But in Victoria, that's abandoned very quickly. In Queensland, well, there is no policy of protection for Aboriginal people. The only policy in Queensland is the Native Police Force for 50 years. What do you know of the impact of these wars in Queensland on the Kalkadoon side of your family, Rachel? Yes, well, there's a famous battle at what's called Battle Mountain near Mount Isa. There's an account of a battle there, but some historians don't support the legitimacy of that account because the way that Aboriginal warriors are depicted as fighting is very unusual. They're hurling stones from the top onto the native police below, but it says that they run into the firing squads, basically, which is very unusual. Aboriginal warriors didn't fight like that. So some historians think that it might have been fictionalised to some degree by the writer. But in all of these things, there is always a kernel of truth. And there was a battle. It did happen. I think it was Urquhart, Sub-Inspector Urquhart, I think, who was knocked unconscious by a rock. And But there might have been some um, gilding of the lily by the person who wrote the account but we know that something did happen there and indeed there was a native police camp at Booyah nearby. So my ancestors are Kalkadoon and there was killing of Kalkadoon people. But the extent of it, how it happened exactly, the numbers killed, you know, we'll never know for sure because people just didn't keep the records of how many they killed and, and where they did keep records, like the native police were meant to keep records many of those records have been destroyed. How about the other side of the family from Central Australia? You found an audio tape recording of your grandmother, Hetty, talking about a massacre at Mount Riddick Station near Alice Springs. How did you find this recording, Rachel? Well, it was quoted in my father's biography uh, by historian Peter Reid. So I went looking for this recording which I hadn't heard before. And I found it, yes, in Canberra at the Australian Institute of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander Studies. It had been done in the 1970s and there were a couple of tapes and you can hear the sort of cars driving past and kids in the background and the crows. And, but right, so it was, was like this... done on an old cassette recorder or something, was it? Absolutely, <laughs> right. yeah, around the kitchen table at mm. my grandmother's house on the east side in Alice Springs. And uh, she spoke, I don't know, fluently, and English was her second language. But you can hear her words um, describing how her mother, my great-grandmother, survived uh, the killing of her family, all of her family, as she said. What was it like to hear your grandmother's voice talking about these events? Well, it wasn't a shock, actually, because these things happen so frequently was no shock at all to me. Often people think that, you know, there's some agenda at play here. My grandmother just said, oh, yeah, and this is where they were killed at Mount Riddick. She ran away. My mother ran away. They killed all her family. It's very matter of fact, and she's not saying it for any other purpose than telling it as it is. And then she moves on to the next subject. You know, I mean, I just wish I would have been there to ask more questions, you know, of what happened, what were the circumstances, who did it, how did you feel about it, how did your mother feel about it? Did you say her whole family was killed apart from her there? How many well, people are we talking about? We don't know, but she says all my mother's mob, I think is the expression she uses. 
The other account that we have, which we think is the same event, they say hundreds, 200 they say, and there's two other accounts and they match up because there's a man who's shot in the thigh who survives and lives to tell the story as my great-grandmother did who told it to her daughter that I then listened to, you know, as a mother myself. So, yeah, these stories are there and I think, you know, even though we only have the records of 400, there would be many, many more, I think, that have been lost over time. So how did you feel about going out there to tell that story on that land? Well, I felt... Did you want to go? I did want to go, but of course I was trespassing (laughs) because that is on a cattle station and it's very strange to be making, can I say, a series called The Australian Wars where you're going onto your own people's country and you are trespassing onto their land, (laughs) onto your people's land is very, you know, that is the thing that gets me today, that this place that our people were forced off is in other hands and we'll never get it back. You know, and and, and my producers are saying to me, well, you don't have permission to go there. You haven't got the clearance and you could be uh, jailed and fined (laughs) $10,000. And I said, well, if they jail me and fine me $10,000, it'll be great publicity for the series. So, (laughs) So, yes. so, So what was it like once you went out there onto that land? Well, it's beautiful country. We shot it at dusk and very simply and... We played the recording, I said my thing, we lit a fire and we left. But it is beautiful country out there and it is haunting in some ways, but it's my people's land so it's it's still wonderful to be there. Even though I was trespassing, I felt good to be able to stand on that country and tell the story of what happened to my great-grandmother's people. I felt a great honour and some sense of justice, even though justice wasn't given to them and even though there is no justice as that is not our country. In telling the story, I felt some feeling, some cathartic feeling, I suppose, for people to hear it. What happened? What happened there at that place? A lot of the accounts of these massacres rely on Indigenous oral histories. And Western historians often regard oral history as unstable. But this is where archaeology can come to the rescue. Is archaeology revealing things that will affirm or not affirm some of these oral histories, Rachel? How does this come in at this point? Well, let me first say this, I think, about people saying that oral testimony has no value because it's passed down and it changes. Yes, that can happen, of course. But what I've found and what I think is true is that there is always a kernel of truth in oral history about what happened. You know, some parts of the facts may change, but there is always truth within it. Like the story of my grandmother, my great-grandmother, and what happened to her. You know, we don't know how many people were killed. We don't know who did it, but we know that it happened because the survivors tell the stories and they tell their children and then their children tell their children and then like me, I heard it from my father. So there's always truth there, but people want to say that that doesn't stand up as truth. The thing you've also got to say is that, well, the primary sources, what we call written records, there's also a lot of cover-ups and agendas running in those records. A person might be writing a letter and covering their tracks or a governor might be sanitising the records. So those records aren't completely bulletproof for want of a better expression. But anyway, so people have these agendas where they're trying to undermine the truth of these things. So that's where scientific methodology can be applied. And we've seen a few instances of where archaeological forensic testing can help support oral testimony. So up in the Kimberley, for instance, there's been a couple of archaeological digs 
looking at bone fragments, testing bone fragments and seeing what's happened to them to try and understand how they came to be tiny particles of bone which have been made small but been made into tiny particles by intense burning. So fires burning for a number of days at very intense burns was a way that people got rid of the evidence and it happened all over North Australia and other parts of Australia as people covered their tracks. Once they killed people, they chopped them up into smaller parts, then they burnt their bodies with loads of fuel that they continued to feed so that they could burn for a number of days. People often then came back and burnt cattle bones over the top of them or they collected the particles and got rid of them that way. So this happened all across Australia as people covered their tracks. So that's where archaeological research is very useful in looking at what is there in the physical evidence at these places of killings. These are totalising wars you're talking about. The evidence suggests they were systemic, ongoing over decades. They resulted in the death of, we, what do we know, tens of thousands, maybe 100,000 people? We don't really know but we know the result was catastrophic. And it happened here in Australian soil. Are these wars commemorated in the War Memorial? Well, unfortunately, very little commemoration. I mean, we're seeing more. I mean, a few years ago, because this project took a few years to make, I could count them on one hand. There are more memorials to these conflicts now. We're seeing an increase. But in comparison to the memorials for, say, Anzac memorials, which they're 10,000 and growing, I would say there's probably about 20, 25, 30 now, maybe at the very most. I haven't done a recent count. And in terms of the Australian War Memorial, which is the place where you might expect these wars to be acknowledged, there is some acknowledgement. There is a painting by Rover Thomas, and there is a story of a man who survived a massacre and then went on to serve, I think, in the Air Force, but I could be wrong about that, an Aboriginal man. So there are those two references to frontier conflict in the Australian War Memorial. There's also a sculpture, but that, for me, in comparison to the overwhelmingly large-scale acknowledgement of other warfare in the Australian War Memorial seems insufficient for conflict that was fought on Australian soil about our country by Australians, by the first Australians and those that came here and would later become Australians. Do they even think these wars are within the remit of the War Memorial? Because you spoke to an official there who said that, well, mainly the War Memorial is about Australians who died on foreign soil. Well, that's what it was set up to do because, of course, many of our people who served were buried overseas. So it was set up as a place to commemorate, for people to go to commemorate and memorialise their loved ones. Their argument is that it wasn't set up to commemorate warfare here on Australian soil or the Australian wars. And I've got a deep respect for the War Memorial, as I have a deep respect for Australian men and women who serve. I mean, that is so important to acknowledge that service to our country. So I don't mean to disrespect that tradition or the War Memorial itself, but I do feel that it could expand its recognition rather than, as they suggest, putting it down at the Australian Museum with the old-fashioned cars and the stuffed animals, etc. If you look at the war, the war memorial and the way Australians commemorate war, it's not particularly jingoistic. It's done in an overwhelming tone of grief and a need for remembrance and solemnity. Tonally, I think it would be entirely appropriate to commemorate these wars within the War Memorial. Well, look, we must remember that the War Memorial has changed over time. You know, there was a time when it wouldn't accept the Vietnam War yeah, yeah. in the War Memorial, and of course it has adapted. Now, the War Memorial is only saying that it is limited by its legislation, and it's a narrow reading of the legislation. Legislation can be changed very simply. But can I say that there's never been an Aboriginal person on the War Memorial Council that sets the policy. So that's an important consideration, I think. 
in its 80-year history. But I think it will change. I think there will come a time as our nation matures that we will acknowledge that this happened in our country and we will think that it is fitting that there should be recognition, appropriate recognition, not minor recognition, appropriate recognition to this conflict that occurred in our country. I, I think, I hope, it will occur in our lifetime and I hope this documentary series goes some way in encouraging the conversation like we're having right now that brings that change. You know, I've always loved reading history ever since I was a kid and there's this common thread, this really dark thread that runs throughout human history that when people want or need to take something that belongs to someone else, they tend to even need to in their own minds dehumanise the people they're taking it from. Do you think that's what's happened here? Yes, that's absolutely what's happened here and I think it enables people, as you say, to... And as the historians say in our series, uh, when you dehumanise people, you can do terrible things to them. And terrible things happened here. I mean, this series is very watchable, I believe. <laughs> but it is. when you read the records, they're very hard to read them. And I think one of my great challenges was trying to translate the just the brutality that you see in the records and the way that people speak and what they did. I mean, I don't even want to just say it. Some of the things I've read about what they did to Aboriginal women, you know, it's just horrendous. So to be able to do that, not only probably you have to be brutalised yourself, as many of the people who came here were, but you have to have a view of the people you're doing it to that they are less than human, I think, and uh, are savages and, as they describe it, you know, vermin, um, you know, uh, the, the worst sort of descriptions. I mean, and you see that in, in other places. Again and again and again. It's a really old story, that one. It's a really yes. old story. Often people had come here and they'd put all of their life savings, all of their, they'd come across the, you know, the other side of the world. The stakes were high. They had to succeed. The governors had to succeed. You know, the governors had to win. They could not go back to England having allowed the Aboriginal people to conquer them. I mean, that was just not possible. The empire had to succeed. People had to succeed. They wanted the land. They were here to acquire that, and that was the bottom line. And um, Aboriginal people largely got in the way of that. The elders you've spoken to from various uh, peoples across Australia, do they see this as unfinished business? Yes. Is there a finish to it? The relationship between the Australian government and the Australian people and the first Australians does need a resolution. It is well overdue and it has been called for again and again. Like this is the unfinished business of the nation and Aboriginal people with our friends and supporters have been calling for this for a very, very long time. My father called for this, people before him called for this. Hopefully it will be achieved again in our lifetime, but there is a clear pathway forward and it can be uh, encapsulated in the Uluru Statement from the Heart, calling for voice, treaty, truth-telling. And I think we are on that path now. I think it's a, it's a good time in Australia to be having these discussions. I think the community is becoming more aware of these issues and I think there will be, there will be a resolution and uh, I hope to be here to witness it. <laughs> Rachel, I'm sure the therapeutic effects of making this documentary were the furthest thing from your mind in wanting to make it. But nonetheless, having made it, this series, do you, do you feel better or, or, or worse about things? I feel good about it. I mean, as you can probably tell in the way I'm talking about it, you know, this is very hard history and it's, it's very unjust and it's very brutal. And I find that difficult to talk about, but it is just the hard facts. And I think I feel very proud to be able to give a platform for other people to speak and tell their 
truth. That makes me feel very good that Aboriginal people in Tasmania get to tell their story. You know, the Gunditjmara get to tell their story in Victoria. Queensland Aboriginal people get to tell what happened to them. Non-Indigenous people get to talk about how they feel about their family's involvement in some of this violence. They get to talk about how they feel about this history not being recognised. It's very liberating to give other people also a platform to speak their truth. And then you meet people, you know, like I did in the supermarket the other day, who thank you and embrace you and say how much it meant to them. So Does it make it hard to get the shopping done, though? (laughs) Look, it's only happened once. So, uh, yeah, it's nice. It's nice. It it means a lot to people, Mm. and that's a beautiful thing. The thing that I can't get out of my mind is Rodney Dillon, a Tasmanian elder saint to this day, he can't drive over the John Batman Bridge in Tasmania. He has to drive around it because it's named after a man who was a murderer of Tasmanian people. That sticks in my mind for some reason. Oh, yeah, like in Alice Springs, there's a street called Wilshire Street, which my auntie lived on, and, you know, he was a bloodthirsty killer and abuser of women. You know, all across our country, we've got these names and places named after these people in our colonial history, and, you know, we have to put up with that. Yeah, it's not unusual, but I think that the thing is, is that, you know, history, as the great poet Udru Nunakal said, it's all around us. It permeates our lives every day in ways that I can't go on to the cattle station of my people's country. Rodney won't drive over the bridge. You know, my nephew wants to get the street, Wilshire Street, changed. Our people are still in boxes in the National Museum whose lives were taken in frontier conflict. These things are still with us. History is all around us and within, she says. Rachel, thank you for sharing your story today. Pleasure. Rachel Perkins is the director and presenter of a new series on SBS and on SBS On Demand called The Australian Wars. I'm Richard Feidler. Thanks for listening. You've been listening to a podcast of Conversations with Richard Feidler. For more Conversations interviews, please go to the website abc.net.au slash conversations. Hi, I'm Kurt Fernley, Paralympian and proud person with a disability. And I'm Sarah Shands, mum of a bright, bubbly, hilarious kid with a disability. I'm an hilarious, I'm fabulous. We're the hosts of a new ABC podcast called Let Us In. Each week, we'll speak with people from around Australia to find out what it's like to live with a disability. She belongs in society, but she's not going to be separated because of who she is and her disability. Every time I arrive at the airport, I turn into someone I don't like. I start to volunteer in different places because I believe to be a volunteer, it keeps you alert. The way that I think about it is that shame is the voice of rejection whispered in the inner ear that says, I am not worthy. Real stories from people with disability about what's really going on. Let us in. The new episode out every Wednesday on the ABC Listen app.